Mankind was created with a purpose to image God, to show his glory, to be his reflection, and to fill the earth and to rule the earth. And we've seen how the problem of sin and death distorts that purpose, and it is inherent to all mankind as demonstrated throughout so much of scripture in the pattern of all of human history, really, until Jesus, who is the perfect image of God, because he's God's son, who paid the penalty for our sin, who died in our place, and resurrected to defeat the power of death. And Jesus gave all who believe his Holy Spirit, who now fills us and enables us to properly image God. And we're given the command then to fill the earth with that image, or to make disciples of all nations, which now because God resides in us, we can make progress. That's the stage we're in now. But what about God's purpose for humanity to rule the earth? And where does the story end? Where are we headed? And that's what we're going to consider today in the conclusion of the story. Or maybe it's just a, a new beginning to the story. Uh, we're going to look at the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. This is uh, what we call apocalyptic literature. Um, apocalyptic literature in Christian scripture is mainly the book of Revelation, but also parts of the book of Daniel, Isaiah, Joel, Zechariah, Ezekiel. There's some apocalyptic literature in each of those. Um, this genre speaks, no surprise, about future events. And there's lots of imagery. Sometimes it's bizarre and crazy and scary. Uh, usually, um, these writings are received through a vision or a dream, and um, oftentimes the person hearing it or seeing it is kind of led on a tour by an angel. Kind of like in the Christmas Carol, uh, the, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, right? Where it's being guided around showing what's about, to, what's about to come. That's kind of how these visions go down. Uh, it's a mixture of events that are being seen, events in the material world, what we kind of have in front of us and can see, but also the spiritual world is being opened up to kind of look behind the curtain, which can't just be seen with our natural eyes. So the spiritual world that's being described in this literature um, has to be described with things that we kind of somewhat know. So the writers kind of draw on images like um, dragons and beasts and this kind of fantastical language. And um, oftentimes the writers even confused to, as to what he's seeing, as might we be as we look into this. Um, apocalyptic literature is a type of prophecy. Um, it even says that in Revelation 1 verse 3. And um, though it's different in some ways, we may talk about um, than, than most of the Old Testament prophets. There are a lot of interpretations of the book of Revelation. Um, is it all in the future or is some of it present? Is some of it past? There's probably some of both. Um, this was written, as we'll see, to inform some churches that existed a couple thousand years ago. Um, and so some of this has possibly already happened. Though some of it is still, I think, very clearly future. There's a lot of people, especially more in recent history, that think this book basically describes kind of one chronological timeline or sequence of events that's still yet to come. That's the, the Left Behind series that you may have read or seen, seen the movies. Other people think that this is describing, to some extent, future events, but describing it kind of multiple times in multiple ways, kind of from different perspectives. Uh, it's also, I think, reasonable to say 
that history tends to repeat itself. So these types of events have already happened to some extent and will happen again. And that kind of multiple fulfillment would be consistent, I think, with other biblical prophecy. Timelines in prophetic and apocalyptic writing are kind of confusing. And the prophet uh, tends, and John in this book, I think tends to kind of bounce around. And I think that's uh, on purpose from God. I think maybe that helps us not be so set on trying to predict exactly what's going to happen in the future because we're not exactly sure, is this happening now? Is it still to come? What's, what's the mixture of that? So with this um, study, I, I think we should always approach scripture with a lot of humility, right? And um, our ability to understand isn't complete, but especially with apocalyptic literature, I think we have to come to the text very humbly. This, what we go over today, is not meant to predict when Jesus will return. Jesus very specifically says that that cannot be done in Matthew 24. There's lots of people throughout history, maybe you know of some of them, who have been wrong in their predictions about these events, when they will happen, when Christ will return, and so forth. Um, I love what my hermeneutics professor in seminary said. He says this, Remember how poorly Israel interpreted their own apocalyptic literature, the prophets, with regard to the first advent, the first coming of Christ? That should give us pause when we get too cocky with our own interpretations. And then he says, remember that each era in the church believed that Christ would return in its generation. Okay, so we just have to be careful uh, not to overstep what we're supposed to know. A lot of the book, I would say we don't know for sure whether this one portion is symbolic, kind of figurative, or whether it's literal. Um, are the two witnesses described actual people, or are they kind of representative of churches? Are the beasts actually like bizarre creatures or are they actually representative of nations? Um, I still think it's good to study, uh, to try to understand what we can understand. Um, some, something that we kind of should do is, as always with any portion of scripture, but use the text to interpret the text. We're not going to go into a lot of interpretation really today. Um, but there's parts in Revelation, for instance, in the first chapter, it talks about the seven golden lampstands. Okay, well, what are the seven golden lampstands? Are they literal? Well, no, we're told a few verses later that they represent churches, seven churches. Okay, um, there's a place in Revelation that talks about four beasts. Well, those four beasts we read about in other apocalyptic literature in Daniel, chapter 7, 17, um, that they represent four kingdoms. So it's probably the same thing when Revelation 13 talks about four beasts. I think it's reasonable to assume that there's similar symbolism being used and we can use scripture to interpret scripture. I think we can also know something about numerology. It's very important in Hebrew writing, um, especially this type of writing. And though it's not like when we see numbers uh, in scripture, there's a specific secret code that we have to decipher. Um, but we do know that in Hebrew thinking, uh, numbers kind of meant something. The number seven, especially, which we see a lot in, in Revelation, means it has this idea of being complete or, or full, right? So it's not that we can't make any sense of apocalyptic literature, um, but what isn't made clear, I just think we have to very humbly hold loosely. And I think there's been a lot of unnecessary division in the church over these things um, that's just very unfortunate and we're talking about things that we just can't be so certain of. Um, so 
real quickly, let's go through the main events, a super big picture of what's happening in this book. This is not going to be some survey of the book. It's just, I mean, I'm literally going to hit the, the real high level highlights. This was written, we find in chapter one by the apostle John. Um, he was probably the last surviving apostle and he wrote it near the end of the first century. I think maybe 80 or I'm sorry, 90, 95 AD, somewhere in there. He was exiled on the island of Patmos, which is a real island. You can go there today. And he there saw a vision of Jesus. And so the, the outline of that vision is this. Chapters one through three, uh, he sees Jesus and then he's given instructions to give to seven churches. Chapters four and five, John sees a vision of the throne room of God. Chapters six through 16 is tribulation, a bunch of really difficult events. Chapters 17 through 20 basically describe a final judgment. And then the end chapters 21 and 22 describe new creation. So first just chapters one through three where John sees Jesus Christ who tells him to write letters to the seven churches. Uh, the ch seven churches of Asia. Uh, so in a way you could say this is an epistle or a letter of sorts, right? Um, the churches that John is writing are uh, ranging from kind of apathetic and disobedient to God uh, to faithful, a couple of them, and, and very persecuted. And they are needing preparation from God for what is or what was to come. Great tribulation is coming. And they will have a choice to be faithful or to deny the Lord. And those who remain faithful, these letters say, or those who overcome or those who conquer will be rewarded. And he describes some of that reward. So it was those first couple chapters are written to seven historical churches. But again, the number seven means something. So I think we could say uh, maybe it, it, it's written to, to all churches of all times because seven is just this number of completeness. Maybe it's meant to kind of cover every type of church out there. So then we read those letters in chapter two and three that John is to give the churches. Then next section, chapters four and five, John sees a, a vision of the heavenly throne room and all creation, including some bizarre creatures, are worshiping God who is seated on his throne. And then God reveals a scroll with seven seals that no one can open except the Messiah, who John sees um, appear before him as a slain lamb, who represents Jesus, right? Who uh, also is then worshiped in this kind of heavenly scene. So this scroll is handed off. Well, what's in the scroll? Basically, the scroll is kind of this unfolding or this plan for the end times, including judgment and redemption. And no one can, can bring this plan into action except the Lamb. So he begins to open the seals, and then it gets really bizarre and, and really debated, right? Um, so the next section, chapter 6 through 16, uh, describes tribulation in three sets of seven judgments. The seven seals are opened, there's seven trumpets that are blown, there's seven bowls that are poured out. And again, this was originally revealed to seven historical churches, so some of these events may have already happened, and again, that's really debated, but um, the judgments that are described in these three sets of seven are varied and extreme. 
We read of all sorts of judgments poured out in the earth and the heavens from, from disaster and war to um, natural disasters, famine and earthquake, to economic hardships, to exodus-type plagues like hail and locusts and sores and the sea turning into blood. You remember all those horrible plagues that came upon Pharaoh, and um, I think it's similar in that Pharaoh, you remember, he, he didn't respond to any of those plagues really with repentance. Ultimately, even the final plague, he doesn't respond with repentance saying, yeah, I'm going to worship God alone. And so as we're reading the Exodus events, we're like, how in the world could Pharaoh, after all of those horrible things that happened, the 10 plagues, how could he not repent and actually turn to the Lord to worship him? How could that be possible? It's so obvious that God is in control, but he didn't. And in a like way here, as these judgments are being poured out, this tribulation, we could ask, how are people not turning to Jesus? How is not everybody turning to him and say, okay, God, you win. We're going to follow you. Um, but in a similar way as the Exodus, they don't repent. Um, there's also, though, at, at the same time going through this section, descriptions of the faithful or those who are overcoming. And it's people from every nation, every language, every tribe, every tongue. And we hear of some, some of them being martyred. And, and they're crying out to God in this tribulation, how long will this be? How long, Lord? And uh, we read at some points of some of their resurrection, and they're told of um, this, this coming time in the future where every tear will be wiped away from their eyes. So we have these three sets of seven judgments, and whether it's a chronological sequence of events, like 21 kind of things that, that happen over time, um, a, a literal seven-year period of tribulation, say, um, or whether it's the same events kind of described from different perspectives three different times, I don't know. Um, have things like these things happened to some extent already in the past already? Well, yeah. Um, will these things certainly happen again in the future and maybe in one final kind of terrible way? Well, yes, this seems to indicate that. Um, a couple of things just specifically to note kind of within this section, chapters 12 through 14. In chapter 12, we see a spiritual battle between a dragon and a woman and her male child, um, really. In chapter 13, we meet two beasts who probably represent kind of two world powers uh, or rebellious nations. One may be a military power and one an economic power. And we see that many people would give their allegiance to that second beast. And they would do so by taking a mark on their forehead and on their hand, a mark um, 666, which, um, again, it's not some secret code. In, in Hebrew, the letters that um, spell the Hebrew word beast, um, if you add up each of the Hebrew letters have a, have a numerical value. If you add those up, the letters of the word beast, it adds up to 666. Um, and in the same way, the dominant ruling power of the day when this was being written and the seven churches existed, um, if you took Nero Caesar's name and the letters of that and add them, you put those together, you also get 666. So we think that's probably what's going on with that number. Um, taking that mark somehow is, is kind of pledging your allegiance to the beast instead of the Lamb of God. 
And is that some literal thing that happens? I don't know. Um, but it's in contrast to a seal on the forehead that was already placed on those who are servants of God. You can see um, in Revelation 7, 4, and also 14, 1. So the, the believers, the faithful, will already be sealed, and then there will be others who receive the mark of the beast, okay? Um, in chapter 14, then, there's a call to worship God instead of those other powers because we see that final judgment is going to come. And that's kind of where we get to in chapters 17 through 20, kind of descriptions of the final judgment. Um, we, uh, John sees a great prostitute um, named Babylon, which kind of stands for every rebellious nation, all of humanity, and that that um, prostitute is riding on a beast who later destroys her. So the kingdom of the earth, the kingdoms of the earth rebelling against God finally come to an end. And really it's the, it's the beast that's bringing their destruction or the, the dragons bringing their destruction. Um, and then we see some final battles um, in chapter 19 and 20 in this section here where Jesus comes to give final judgment. And that's where we get this idea of the Battle of Armageddon, where the dragon and the beasts and all of the rebellious nations that are called Gog at this point um, are coming against the Lord. And Jesus arrives in chapter 19 on a white horse and throws the beast and his prophet into the lake that burns with sulfur. And he slays all of the other enemies with a sword that's coming out of his mouth. And he binds the dragon for a thousand years um, the martyrs come back to life and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. That's the millennial kingdom talked about in chapter 20. Uh, we're not even going to get into that tonight, really. But then after that, it seems, or, or compared also with that battle of art again, we read about this final judgment. Okay, uh, We call it the great white throne judgment in the end of chapter 20. Here in this judgment, everyone who has ever lived comes back to life. And all of their deeds of all time have been recorded in books. And everyone is to be judged according to what they've done. Which is bad news because of the problem that we've described and everyone's pattern of following that problem. But there is a, another book, the book of life. And in this book is written only the names of those who belonged to the Lamb. Those who had pledged their allegiance uh, in faith to him and have his seal on them. Those people will be spared the judgment uh, that's called the second death. So anybody's name who wasn't in the book of life will be cast into this lake of fire, where is Satan, uh, the beasts, the prophets, and even death and Hades. All evil will be thrown into that lake and will be defeated and over forever. Final little section, chapters 21 and 22, the best part maybe of the whole story, uh, we call new creation. Jesus comes and it says he is making all things new. So he's, he's recreating the heavens and the earth. Chapter 21, verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth, first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And we see a new Jerusalem where... Um, um, from, from their God and the Lamb will reign and will be with their people forever apart from the presence of sin and evil and suffering and tears and death. 
And as God promised to those who would persevere, he would wipe away every tear from the eyes of those who are there. And the book ends, in fact, the whole entire story of the Bible ends with Jesus promising, I am coming soon. So this is a wild book about a cosmic conflict between good and evil. The tribulation and the judgments that occur are depicted as horrific, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, if they're very little, literal or very figurative. They are awful and nobody wants to experience them. But is the book meant to scare us? No, quite the opposite of that, I believe. It's actually meant to encourage believers. There's a theological purpose to apocalyptic literature um, that's different from some other prophecy. It's, it's not meant, as I said, to help us predict something. It's not meant to scare us, but it's meant to draw us near to God and to be filled with hope that he is all-powerful and that he will be victorious overall. It's meant to encourage. You know, it's a little different than a lot of the Old Testament prophets that weren't so encouraging. They're just saying, you need to do this, you haven't done this, and there's, there's going to be exile coming for you. Um, and it's kind of meant to scare them out of that, which it didn't do. Uh, but this is meant to encourage those who would be called to endure through such great tribulation. Um, as we read this, we can be certain, and this is one of the purposes of it, I think, that there are dark spiritual powers behind the events of earth, both in the, in the past, in the present, in the future. There's this cosmic struggle going on, but God is conquering evil through the blood of the Lamb, chapter 12, verse 11. So the suggestion is, the encouragement is, follow the Lamb even unto death because he wins. And this book, it's just suggesting that believers in Jesus would persevere, would overcome, because Jesus will hold true to his promises. And that's our P word, our last P word for this series, promise. There's several promises given to the churches at the beginning of the book that are fulfilled one by one at the very end of the book here in New Creation, chapters 21 and 22. What's promised in chapters 2 and 3 are fulfilled in the end. To the one who conquers, they're told to be, they'll be saved from the second death, and they are. They'll be part of the heavenly Jerusalem, and they are. They'll eat of the tree of life. They have written on their uh, foreheads the name of God. They'll be dressed in white, and in the end we see them as a bride. Their name will be written in the book of life. They'll receive the morning star. They will, oh, guess what? They're going to rule. That's promised to one of the churches in chapter 2, verse 26. They are going to rule, and we find out in the end, those believers who have overcome are ruling forever. Very interesting. So if you remember what God created mankind to do, to image him, to fill the earth, and to rule. And we've already seen the first two kind of begin to take shape, right? But about the ruling. We read um, in chapter 2 to the church in Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 26. Jesus says this, to the one who conquers, or the one who perseveres to the end, and who keeps my works until the end, he says, to him I will give authority over the nations. And then to the church in Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him, listen, to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father 
on his throne. Chapter 5 in the throne room, we hear said, By your blood, Jesus, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, listen, and they shall reign on the earth. Those people who the blood of Christ has ransomed. There's other New Testament passages, we didn't run through them in our other sessions, that speak about this present, or, or this reality, this, this promise about the future. Uh, Jesus says that the, for those that on the earth were faithful with a few things, he says, I will put you in charge of many things, right, in the book of Matthew. Um, I did read at the end of last time, foreshadowing this, um, uh, uh, Paul says, if we endure, we will also reign with Christ. There's a promise. Well, when does that reign happen? Because it's not now, like Christians are being persecuted and killed. We're not ruling right now. It doesn't seem. Well, it's describing a time in the new Jerusalem and the new creation. And uh, here's what John hears right at the end of his vision, Revelation 22, verse 5. And the night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, for they will reign forever and ever. They will reign forever and ever. What will that reign look like? What will that rule look like? As I kind of mentioned in part one, in our purpose, it's a little hard maybe for us to imagine. We um, think of dominion and subduing the earth as it, it might kind of sound like a negative thing, but with the absence of sin, and with humans properly imaging God, it's what we were created to do, to rule, to have dominion over creation, to subdue it, to work it, and to make it beautiful. And all of the Babylons of the world ruled in disobedience to God, but a world filled with and ruled by the images of God, I think it'll be something that we probably can't even fathom. Uh, but we will indeed rule alongside the Lord. Just to wrap up, part six of the plot is about the fulfillment of promise. A promise made and then a vision of the future where that promise is kept. Certainly, of all the promises made by God, so many of which we've already seen fulfilled, the most anticipated promise yet to be fulfilled is the promise of the return of Christ to make all things right, which involves judgment on evil, taking care of that, and setting up his perfect kingdom on earth, which lasts forever. And the return of Christ, it's, it's alluded to and mentioned a number of times, especially in the New Testament. Um, in part four, when the perfect, remember when Jesus came for the first time, he said, um, in Matthew 24, we didn't read it, but he said, immediately after the tribulation, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. There it is, Jesus saying, this is going to happen. In part five, last time we saw uh, that the angels said to the disciples who are watching Jesus as he kind of ascends into heaven, they say, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus is coming again. Jesus, the Messiah, he has promised to return, to give appropriate judgment on all evil, to vindicate the faithful, and to continue the work of God that he started at creation. So 
this leads us maybe just to one final look at the story as a whole. Okay, this is a, a beautiful, I love it so much. This is a beautiful, intricate, epic, supernatural story. And we've broken it up into six parts. Part one, purpose. God created all things and gave life and provided everything good. And he uniquely made mankind to image him, to fill the world with that image, and to rule the earth. And they can even live forever by eating the tree of life at that point. But then part two, the problem. A serpent deceives the woman, and Adam and Eve both choose disobedience or sin, which leads to the problem of pain and eventual death, including banishment from the garden. Banishment from the tree of life, banishment from God's presence. And we see that every subsequent human being is infected with the same disease of sin and death, the problem. And they show their blatant rebellion, maybe most obviously by setting up a kingdom against God that is meant to show off themselves instead of imaging God. And their capital building, remember Genesis chapter 11, is the Tower of Babel. Okay, that's the course of humankind setting up our kingdoms against the Lord. But God made a promise to the serpent who kind of kicked things off in the wrong direction that his head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. Then part three comes this pattern, this long pattern through the Old Testament. God chooses a special group of people, uh, the Hebrews or the Israelites, special because he makes them special, and he rescues them out of slavery to Egypt. Um, God made some covenants or agreements with them in which we saw a pattern. God is always faithful, but Israel was not. To Abraham, he promised, remember, to give a land, a nation, which he did give those things. He also promised that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. To David, he promised a faithful king from his line to rule God's kingdom forever. In the covenant to Moses, or the, the law, over and over again, we see very clearly this pattern of human failure, where God had said, hey, if you just obey this, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. Well, where did they continually veer but disobedience? And time and time and time again, we see through the Old Testament in different places with different leaders, different judges, different kings, Tons of rededication ceremonies, warning after warning from the prophets, even exile and judgments. We see that men and women are unable to help themselves out of the problem of sin, out of the problem of death. And so something would have to change, we said, in order for life to be restored and God's purposes to be fulfilled. Enter the perfect Jesus Christ, part four, the Son of God. Well, Jesus did what no human being had ever done. He perfectly obeyed God. He didn't, like Adam and Eve, succumb to the devil's temptation. And he perfectly fulfilled the requirements of that covenant made with Moses, the law. See, Jesus was both man and God. He was the perfect image of God that humanity was purposed to be. And as that perfect image, he not only didn't succumb to the problem of sin, but he solved the problem by paying sin's penalty of death as a substitution for us. And he also raised from the dead, which declares his power over death, and he offers life to all who would exercise faith in him. Part five was progress. 
we see that the pattern of sin was actually being broken now in the lives of believers. How is that? Because they're so great. No, through the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit, who is literally God himself, is given to those who have faith in Jesus, and then he enables us to bear God's image appropriately, to live in obedience, and to begin to fill the earth with his image bearers. That's the Great Commission. And that's what we see beginning to happen in Scripture, in the book of Acts, and some of the epistles, starting first in Jerusalem, where they're at, and then spreading through all Israel, spreading everywhere, filling the earth. So Christ, through us, is becoming a blessing to all nations, as promised to Abraham. And everyone who is born again is being transformed into God's image, back into that perfect image, and is promised eternal life, just as Jesus was raised. And then lastly, part six here, the promise. Part six promises kind of a final step. The problem won't only kind of be solved, but will be completely removed. After the great tribulation, we read in Revelation 20 that Jesus seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and later he will throw him into the lake of fire and sulfur. So that promise to the serpent in the Garden of Eden will be fulfilled. We see that God will totally destroy Babylon, that rebellious earthly kingdom representing all earthly kingdoms that started near the beginning in creation um, or, or just after the fall with the, the Tower of Babel. So you see that kind of epitome of rebellion against God now here at the end being completely destroyed and brought down. So when all of these are destroyed, the worldly human kingdoms and the spiritual forces of Satan, no evil will be left. Only God's incoming new creation, including us, who will be made complete, perfectly displaying his image again, where humanity is once again offered the ability to eat of the tree of everlasting life, Revelation 22.2. And so forever... God's purposes for mankind will go on unhindered as they display his image, as they fill the earth with his glory, and as they rule with him, as we rule with him who is the promised king from David's line who will reign forever. And Jesus will return and will bring this to a final end, or maybe we should say to a new beginning. It's such a beautiful story. Um, it's kind of one giant chiasm. If you think about it, the garden at the beginning and then the beauty of, of perfection at the end. Uh, it starts off and ends both that way. There's this major cosmic event in the fall with sin and death. And then the last thing that happens before the new creation and the beauty and perfection is this cosmic event of the final judgment. And then you step in a little bit, you see the trajectory of failure with the people of Israel, and you see the trajectory of progress for the people of the church, those who are true in their faith. And then right in the middle of it all, it's the hero of the story, Jesus. I think Hebrew literature likes to do these chiasms, and the center point is what they want to draw your attention to, which in this case is Jesus. So the hero of the story is Jesus. The Old Testament shows the repeated failure of man, and the only success of humanity in the New Testament is because God literally places himself in mankind by the Spirit of Christ. 
So who gets all the praise in this story? This is how God has purposely designed it. It's him. It's the Lord God, the Son Jesus, his spirit. I'll read from Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I hope that our walk through the Bible in these last seven lessons has been helpful to you. Um, I hope that you will review this. I would suggest sometime, maybe this summer, listen to these teachings. Throw the podcast on, listen at double speed if you want, just to kind of help you retain and remember what you learned. Otherwise, it's, it's going to be so easily lost. Um, or, or listen to some other, read some other Bible survey, just to kind of lock that in. There's some short kind of condensed versions of, of the story as a whole. Um, Remember, this isn't just some random kind of interesting story, but it's a true story. It's the true story, right? That explains the purpose of life, explains God's plan for all time. And it's our story. Adam and Eve and Noah and his wife, they are our ancestors, right? We are Abraham's spiritual children. Israel's history is our own spiritual heritage as Christians. We're currently now living in part five, progress, where God has placed his spirit in us who believe in him and is causing us to obey him and fill the earth with the image of God through the great commission of making disciples of all nations. So this is our story. And not only are we drawn into it, but God himself, the author, enters into the story. And because the way that God enters it or the way that it is written, his creation creatures like us can know him, the creator. It's a beautiful story. I would argue that if you learn anything in life, learn this story. Learn to tell this story. At local church fellowship, at our churches, we come back every couple of years and do some sort of just overview kind of look at the scriptures like we've done in the last few weeks, just to kind of make sure that this story is sinking into our hearts. It is the most important story. And our final lesson we'll get to uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about this word gospel and how that word tells us that this book, the Bible, is not meant to sit on the shelf, but to be proclaimed, to be told. So I'll end as I had with every other week with a foreshadow of what's to come. And this is something that's already been written right at the very end, the last couple verses of the Bible. We read in Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. That's a promise. And to where John replies, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.